The Priory by A.D. Marr. I'd like to welcome you to this introduction to book one of a medieval fantasy series created by A.D. Marr. In essence, an, an entree into the macabre and mysterious goings-on in, among and below the Priory of Eleanor. My name is Charles Hill, your series narrator, and along the way I will introduce you to a selection of colourful characters and even more colourful events. To assist you in visualising the geography and the setting relating to the Priory, illustrations can be viewed by clicking on the left-hand page's sidebar uh, with links for the Priory of Eleanor and Western Lands. The Priory is the first book in the Skull Saga, to which our adventure opens with a prologue appropriately entitled Before. The torch flared in the darkness. Smoke curled lazily up from the flaming brand, slowly twisting this way and that, languidly caressing the walls before gathering in a thick haze on the tunnel roof. It was held by a thin, aged hand which shook from suppressed excitement, creating fleeting shadows on the walls. The small group trod warily along the rough passage. They were far underground and the air was thick and oppressive. Their feet echoed sullenly against the solid rock. The stone was old and surprisingly dry, despite being this close to the coast. The old man with the torch led, moving slightly ahead of the other two, his head bobbing left and right as he carefully examined the passage floor and walls for the signs. They were nearing their goal. He could feel it. It had been a wearying few days. This long below ground could numb the strongest of spirits, but the leader was resolute. They would not abandon their search, particularly now they were so close. He quickened his step as they rounded a sharp bend in the tunnel, drawing the others behind him and infusing them with his excitement. But he halted abruptly. Before the three men was a solid wall of rock, an unexpected ending to the rough tunnel they had traversed. It's another dead end, said one in frustration, the tallest. His voice was a deep, rich baritone. It can't be, said another, who was both thinner and shorter. It just can't. This tunnel's been purposely carved by man. Why end it thus? He ran his fingertips over the surface of the wall, delicately tracing the chisel marks and the scoring left when the passage had been cut. You can see the markings here and here. There must be something then, said the leader, the oldest. I can almost feel it, sense it. His shoulders were hunched in his dark robe and he stooped slightly. Strange that I cannot, observed the baritone. Ignoring the comment, the old man moved closer to the wall, holding his torch close to examine the rock face. Surely, he mused, pushing and prodding softly, muttering to himself, but the stone was unyielding to his touch. Impatient, the tallest man slapped at the stone in annoyance. Are we even at the right place? Of course we are, growled the eldest, throwing a nasty look at the baritone. All the other tunnels led us nowhere. It has to be through here. He pushed more heavily at the rock, almost willing it to open to disgorge its secrets. He shivered in anticipation. Can't you feel it? 
but the tall baritone could not. He cast about angrily, wanting to lash out at something. How could this old man sense its presence when he, the strongest, the most fervent of the free, could not? The thought rankled and he snarled in frustration. Years of searching had led them here, and now at what seemed to be the very place they had long sought, and that they had given so much of themselves to locate, they were being thwarted by a simple wall of stone. He clenched his fists in anger. Then, abruptly, out of the depths of his mind, an idea came to him. Perhaps, he mused silently, looking at the wall darkly. He touched the stone, feeling it, trying to sense it as the other had done. Could that be it? He frowned as he considered the new thought. Could it be so simple? Of course, it had to be. He smiled at his discovery. They needed a key, a way to gain passage to what lay beyond, and that was surely the answer. Drawing a long steel dagger from within his scarlet-hemmed robes, he held it before him, letting the gleaming blade catch the torchlight. He smiled malevolently. It was a beautiful thing, so sharp, so bright, and on its pommel was carved a stylized, leering skull. He smiled and then cast his gaze towards his companions. He watched and waited for a long, delicious moment as the two others pushed and prodded at the wall. Which one? Then suddenly, decisively, he moved quickly, grasping unexpectedly at the shortest of them, dragging him close. He struck, sinking the dagger deeper within the man's neck. There was a sudden strangled cry and blood flew from the mortal wound, spraying in a wide scarlet arc which splattered the rock. It hung there briefly, clinging to the surface of the tunnel, hissing and sputtering warmly, before it dripped to the floor in long red streaks. He let the body fall and it collapsed to the stone with a wet splat. Before the oldest could remonstrate with him, several things happened. There was a slow grinding noise and then a brief flash of light and the tunnel grew hot. The two remaining men looked at one another in astonishment as a strange design, an arcane symbol, became evident on the stone. The sign was shaped as a leering skull, similar in design to that which adorned the pommel of the baritone's knife. The sign was about a hand's width in size, and its eyes glowed with a feral red light in mimicry of the blood which yet trickled from the stone. Of course, said the old man, acknowledging the other's brilliance with a single nod. It needed a death. Yes, purred the tall man. Yes. He was ecstatic. Stepping forward and ignoring the blood which had spattered on his robes, he pressed his hand eagerly against the symbol. At once the rock face melted, misted, disappeared. In one instant it was solid and impenetrable and masked in blood, and in the next it was simply gone. In its place stood an archway, wide and crafted from smooth rock. The two men stepped across the lifeless body of their one-time companion and moved excitedly inside. Beyond was a chamber. It was large, and the archway through which they had come was mirrored by many more scattered about the walls. 
It was rectangular in shape. The intervening walls were draped with long, tattered black cloths. They were dusty and rotten in places and carried an acrid reek. Dust lay in heaps on the floor, but despite the rot, they smiled as they entered. In the centre of the chamber lay a stone bier, built to waist height, the surface of which was fashioned with a shallow depression. The stone was black in colour, a sable so dark it seemed to absorb the flickering light of the old man's torch. At its base, dark stains marred the flagstones, splatters and drips of some dark liquid long since dried. Look, said the tallest, pointing excitedly to the far wall. Against a rotten drapery sat a wooden chest, seemingly forgotten and forlorn. It was largest, made of oak and banded with iron straps which were pitted and rusted from age. The timber was chipped and splintered, and its lid bore deep scorings as if it had been hewn with an axe. They hurried across the chamber, disturbing flurries of dust which danced in their wake before settling again on the stone floor. This must be it, said the old man, his eyes filling. He knelt before the chest, eyeing it reverently, greedily, longingly, to think after searching for so long. The Lord of Dread be praised, said the tallest, kneeling beside him. This close to their prize, he could feel its presence, its malevolence, and he turned to his companion and smiled. Inside this chest lay an artefact beyond value, beyond the simple, piteous wealth which mankind held so dear. He grinned widely. Inside lay power, the ability to take life and then return, it wrenching it from beyond the grave. Inside this chest lay their future. No more would he and his followers cower out of sight, powerless, impotent against the might of Eleanor and his works. No more would they suffer the kindness and compassion of others. Death was the answer. Death was the answer to all, and too long had it lain in the shadows forgotten. Long had he searched for it, him and his brethren, following tiny grains of truth, hidden between the countless hints and lies and subterfuge. This moment was the culmination of years of toil, of hardship and sacrifice. But no more. Soon they would rise once again, and they would tremble at their coming. They reached for the pitted iron clasp, and together they reverently raised the ancient lid. Some months later, Crofter's hut, Green Finger Point. The woman was dying. Her face was a mask of pain and tears and dirt-stained cheeks. She writhed, clutching at the thin, coarse bedsheets and raised a hand, imploring to the man who stood behind her. She whimpered, Around the simple cot on which she lay stood a number of elderly leechwomen, concern that etched their faces as they worked to free the baby from the womb of its ailing mother. One dabbed at the bloody liver of some unknown animal which rested on the mother's forehead, and another crouched between the mother's legs, eyes fastened on the small, glistening head which had just appeared. 
The third stood nearest the black wall of the hut's tiny chamber, chanting, sporadically clapping her hands together in an unrecognisable arcane rhythm. The mother screamed as the baby moved, tearing her. The tiny form slipped slightly from her body and the threadbare sheets became stained with her fluids. The man flinched at the sound, kneeling quickly beside the bed and holding determinedly to her hand, whispering comforting words as he shook anxiously, watching her squirm in agony. There was another, weaker scream as the baby moved again. The woman's strength was flagging and the leech woman grew grew worried. The mother's breast moved spasmodically and her breathing was laboured, rattling in her throat as she thought tirelessly to free the child from her loins. Beside her, an urgent hand grasped and turned the liver on her forehead thrice, sending a rivulet of fresh blood into the mother's eyes. She squeezed her eyes tight in pain. The newborn's head emerged slowly then, blue in colour and wet with the woman's waters. A ropey coil was looped around its neck. The crouched leechwoman moved quickly, attempting to free the errant cord. See to me, mother, she ordered curtly, then eased forward, squeezing her bony fingers past the infant and into the woman, clasping the slippery coil to free it from the baby's neck. The mother shrieked again, squirming frantically on the bed. The strength of her grip on her husband's fingers was frightening at that moment. While she writhed, a leash woman raised a steaming cup to the woman's mouth and the dying mother flailed at it desperately, pushing it away. My baby, she gasped. The pottery vessel fell to the floor and shattered. The fluid within seeped into the bare soil of the hut's floor. The crouched leechwoman worked frantically in the cramped confines, pulling at the coil, almost willing it free. The baby's head had emerged now, as had its shoulders. The child was yet blue. The cord was stretched tight about its tiny neck as it slid forward from its mother. The woman at the rear of the hut clapped her hands resonantly once, the tempo of her words swelling as she chanted, her eyes distant now. About her neck hung a potent charm, woven from twigs and grass in a misshapen form. It swung gently as she intoned her cantrap. For a moment more, the kneeling leechwoman struggled, yanking at the cord desperately, pulling and twisting. It held firmly in place as she fought. The coil was slippery. The mother gasped and squirmed and pushed, and then it was done. The baby lay in a small wet heap on the stained sheets. The looped cord was gone, cut and removed by the worn leech woman who stood at the end of the cot, breathing heavily and looking sadly at the fruit of her labour. It was small, oh so small. She stoked then and, and raising the newborn by its leg, smacked it resoundingly on its bottom. The baby coughed once, twice and drew its first breath, wailing weakly as it squirmed. Her neck was discoloured where the cord had bit into her tender flesh. The poor mother, bleeding and exhausted now, was quiet, her breathing drawn and shallow. She did not stir at the feeble cry of her daughter. The leechwoman by her side held a damp rag to her mouth, pressing it to her lips to spill some of the precious liquid into her mouth. The mother ignored it. 
After a moment she closed her eyes and her chest became still. The father stood hopelessly, gripping the still hand of his wife, looking frantically from his wife to the elderly woman. Help her, he cried. His eyes were wide with fright. She is gone, intoned the eldest of the three. The malady was severe and she has been taken from us. No, the husband fell across his still wife, tears rolling from his eyes as he sobbed in his despair. His hand stroked her body, caressing softly, gently, entreating her to return to him. But she remained unmoving. You killed her, he wailed. It was not so, said the eldest sadly. She was already too weak. For one of her age to bear another child, well, she left the rest unspoken. The baby wailed again. The leech woman crowded around her then, prodding and whispering. They examined her closely as she squirmed and cried. I do not think this one will survive long, declared the eldest woman. Her breathing is very frail, the other woman nodded sagely. You can't let her die as well. The old man was stricken with grief. She's all I have left. You've got to do something. I fear there is nothing we can do, she replied, not unkindly. The liver was turned thrice on the mother's head. It is our most potent cantrap, she shrugged, as if that could explain why their best efforts had failed. The malady of the mother must have been great for the baby to be so weak. The man wept as he lay across the still form of his wife, great racking sobs which shook his thin body. Surely there is something, he wept, his eyes clenched tightly closed. There has to be. There is nothing, the woman repeated, eyeing him forlornly. The mother's malady has already taken hold, and as it was with her, so it will be with your daughter. Please. The eldest of the leech women shook her head slowly, sadly. With a sudden cry, the father leapt towards his daughter, scooping her up in his arms. He wrapped her tenderly in his rag-like clothing, and pushing urgently past the women, he fled, stumbling from the room in his haste. The Earl's Keep, Dar Sandor, northeast coast catacombs. The maid slapped the errant hand away from her hips and laughed as she ran into the musty passage. Please, the young man begged her, straggling along behind. His ardent desire was evident both within the dark trousers he wore and on his face, which was twisted in need. The heavy boots on his feet shuffled through a layer of undisturbed dust, sending motes dancing into the air. The girl looked back over her shoulder at him and shivered in delight. It was a little hard to believe that they were finally to be together, she thought. He was so handsome. Oh, she loved him. She knew what was there not to love about the young man. He was educated, charming, and being the son of a great knight was a wonderful catch for a mere serving girl. And tonight, he would learn just how deep that love ran. She giggled and darted swiftly out of his reach. The passage they entered was old and narrow, yet was new to her. Never before had she traversed these halls which lay so far beneath the castle proper. 
The ceiling was arched overhead and profuse with cobwebs, and the walls were set with unadorned grey stone blocks. The air was thick, acrid even, and was musty and bitter on the tongue, but it was dry. Outside, a fierce storm raged, wind and rain and bitter, bitter cold. The passages and catacombs below the castle, while being deep and dark and musty, were comfortable and warm, and most importantly of all, they offered privacy. The young man coughed as a little dust settled in his throat. Quickly, she urged with a smile over her shoulder. He followed her along the dark passage, frustrated at the game. Elspeth, slow down, please. Here is just as good as anywhere. No, Tom, she teased. Not here. We can find a better place. Elspeth carried a small shuttered lantern in one hand and in her other held the hems of her long grey skirt and lacy white petticoat above her ankles as she ran. She was pretty, if not homely, slightly plump with long brown hair that curled in a suggestive manner about her neck and shoulders. Her teeth were even and white and her light green eyes sparkled in a way that suggested far more at this moment. The night's handsome sun trailed dutifully in her wake. She could not wait to have him. She just had to find the perfect place. Her own desire was burning in her loins. The stolen kisses and the casual, casual brushing of his body against hers over the last few days had been simply maddening. Elspeth shivered in anticipation and then coyly slowed a little to allow him to move nearer. As he stumbled towards, towards her, she turned suddenly, surprising him, flinging an arm about his neck and drawing him in for a deep kiss. Tom responded urgently. She could feel his manhood pressing desperately against her skirt and lower stomach. He moaned as her tongue snaked past his lips. Elspeth, he gasped when she drew back for breath. She laughed again and danced away from his arms. Oh, come back, he pleaded with a whine in his voice. The passage continued for a way and then descended down a narrow, rough staircase, the third they had encountered. A rat skittered somewhere off in the darkness and Elspeth's lantern cast looming shadows as they moved deeper into the gloom-filled stairs. In his frustration, Tom whined as he followed after her, stumbling and muttering. In response, she giggled and teasingly held her skirt and petticoat up so he could see her shapely legs. He suddenly lunged and grasped at her clothing, clutching desperately at the coarse cloth. She was not quick enough, and despite swatting at his hand, he managed to take hold of her skirt in a clenched fist. She tripped, dropping her lantern with a clatter. The fabric of her skirt tore as she stumbled down the last of the steps, landing on the rough stone at the base of the staircase, with her clothing in tatters and her exposed white petticoat covered in dust and dirt. "'Tom!' she spluttered in outrage. "'Look at what you've done to my dress!' But he did not answer her. She looked up and saw that the tunnel had ended abruptly and that he was gazing about intently. Irritated at him, she retrieved her lantern from the floor. Mercifully, it was still lit. Where in Alina's world are we? he asked, all evidence of his earlier ardour abruptly gone. They were far under the keep. She knew that, although she did not know where. 
It was difficult to determine how deep below ground they had come. The passage was uneven and seemed built from a different hand than that used to construct the castle. The blocks were far older for a start, and here they were dark and discoloured. The keep's walls were a much lighter grey, almost a different stone altogether, she thought. They were someplace else, that much was certain. It was a small chamber, roughly cut from the rock, with several sable-cloth draperies hanging against parts of the wall. Tom moved slowly about the room, prodding with his foot at the walls and black drapes. "'It's hollow behind here,' he announced at one point, kicking at the cloth to demonstrate. "'I don't think we should do that,' she said, uncertainly, glancing about. "'What are you talking about?' he grumbled. "'It was you who wanted to come this far. Why are you so worried?' He casually kicked the curtain away, exposing a smooth archway. "'Come on,' he said, sounding excited and beckoning to her. Elspeth slowly climbed to her feet and brushed as much of the dust from her petticoat as she could. It fell away in flurries and settled to the stone flags.' Her skirt was ruined and hung from her waist in tattered strips. She grimaced at the thought of what she would have to say to her mother. Well, my petticoat can cover my legs just as well for now. Come on, she heard Tom's voice urging from beyond the black drapes. Reluctantly, she followed him through the archway. They entered a much larger chamber. The room was circular with an even dozen arches leading off into other passages or caverns. The doors to each of the arches were rotten and were filled with boreholes. All had fallen from their hinges, the metal of which had long since rusted into useless lumps of red dust. What is this place? She stood transfixed. It was cold here. About her, the stone floor was littered with rotting cloth and old grey bones. As before, thick dust lay on the flagstones. The cold air made Elspeth's breath mist as it left her mouth. The only warmth was from the lantern, and even that failed to offer sufficient defence against the all-pervading chill. In the centre of the room was a stone block in the shape of a large rectangle, carved in a single piece and black in colour. The top was shaped into a shallow bowl with a small hole near the centre. A rusted candle holder sat in the corner of the stone and beside it rested what appeared to be a small, grey-coloured human skull. What is this place? she repeated in a whisper. We shouldn't be here, she thought worriedly. The room felt wrong. But Tom was already moving about the chamber, exploring curiously, looking into ruined chests and poking his nose behind some of the rotting curtains. Elspeth began to shake from fear. The room chilled her blood as dread coursed her veins. Tom, I think... She started but did not finish. Fear gripped her in its ugly talons and she started to panic, her breath coming in pants. She could not move. Her hands shook violently, and on the dais, the eye sockets of the skull began to pulse with a feral red light. Priory Road, 
green finger point. He was sobbing heavily now. The pain of his loss has eased its way under his desperation. Old Dirk crusted his face. His clothing was no better. Rags held together with frayed twine brown in colour. Although this was largely due to the mud and earth clinging resolutely to the rough homespun fabric rather than a colour chosen with intent. He was an old man, well past 50 now, and the worries of life were etched deeply under his lined face. His remaining thin hair and beard were heavily dusted with grey. The crofter trod with a heavy step. The rags tied to his feet were sodden and caked with mud, and his paces were wooden and trance-like one foot in front of the other, placed without thought, splashing into the rutted and muddy track. He stumbled often, catching his toe on a protruding rock here or a hard clump of raised dirt there. The surface of the road was rough and ill-kept. He did not notice. In his outstretched arms lay the small bundle, it was wrapped in a fold of muddy cloth torn from his own clothing, and he cradled it almost reverently, protecting what lay within, even as he tripped and faltered. It was bitterly cold. Not yet winter, the land yet lay in the grip of icy winds and hostile weather. Flores tugged insistently at his rags as he trod. The trees lining the road swayed and moaned as the wind cut through them, the smaller pines bending and dropping fine-scented needles to the forest floor. The stalwart oaks seemed to resist the wind, rustling their upper branches and remaining leaves in anger while seemingly burrowing their heavy roots deeper within the safety of the earth. In the darkening sky, scudding clouds flew before the wind, their fat undersides glistening with moisture. Not far ahead, where the road cut through the trees, he saw the massive structure that he sought, the Priory of Eleanor. He hoped desperately that help lay within. The building had stood for over 900 years, he knew. An immense edifice built from grey stone blocks. It had a huge vaulted tiled ceiling and many buttressed towers and wings that comprised the quarters of the countless aspirants and postulants that had walked its dim halls over the centuries. Those men and women were good-hearted folk, wise and educated, and some were skilled in the healing of men. It was to them he bought his small bundle. He could not offer much in payment for the help he sought, as he owned very little. Still, hopelessness remained that they would yet aid him. The door to the courtyard within lay open as he approached. It was large and weathered, and built from stout oaken timbers sunk with a heavy archway. The wood was banded with rusted iron crossbars and studded with large bolts driven deep into the timber. Within the recessed entry, iron sconces were fixed to the walls holding unlit torches. 
He passed under the arch, his feet slapping on the wet ground and his face bent, tears flowing freely. The yard inside was mudded in places. Many folk, simply dressed, moved determinedly as they went around their tasks and chores, robes held above their ankles in an attempt to keep them clean. Everywhere was activity, the clang of a hammer on anvil, the whinny of a pony, the sticky splashing of a cart as it trundled through the muck. The man stumbled, and his tired legs finally gave way at that moment. It began to rain then, fat, cold droplets splashing on his head. For a while he simply knelt in a puddle and sobbed, still cradling his child. He barely heard the cry as several men and women rushed to him, sloshing through the mud in their haste. He raised his dirty visage as they approached, and a look of care and love on their faces brought a fresh torrent of tears. The benevolent servants of Eleanor would help both him and the newborn he carried in his arms. They must. This was his last remaining child in the world. His beloved wife was lost to him in childbirth, dead now, bringing this baby into the world, and she would bear no more. Seven children had come before, and not one had survived to their second name day. All had fallen to sickness or the bitter cold the North threw at them year after year. Life had been miserable at times, and hopelessly tough when not. The man found himself unable to speak. Emotions caught at his throat. He was consumed with sorrow, and he held the child before him, mutely entreating the postulants and aspirants to lend aid. And if they failed, would he be alone? Could the servants in the Sacellum help him? Save his daughter? Oh, they had to. He felt a warm touch on his hands, and then the baby was lifted from his grasp. A caring arm was wrapped around his shivering shoulders, and then he was being led somewhere, inside, out of the bitter wind, and in to warmth. So, there you have it, the opening stanza to The Priory by A.D. Marr. In podcast number two, being chapter one, you will meet the central character, an aspirant by the name of Nolson, and his good friend Joshua, as we get to better understand the goings-on within the Priory of Eleanor. Until then... <laughs>